first sat down to do this study, I thought, well, you know what? I was real ambitious. I said, well, I'll get maybe chapters three and four together uh, in this one teaching. And uh, when I got into it, I saw that wasn't going to happen. So I said, well, I'll just shoot for chapter three. That's not going to happen either. As a matter of fact, we're going to go through verse five tonight. But we're going to touch on some some really uh, interesting, I hope, and uh, important topics uh, in our study. So let's go ahead and pray before we start. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together, Lord, as a body, as your body, as your church, and as brothers and sisters uh, molded together by the Holy Spirit in you, Father. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you in praise and prayer and music and song and fellowship, Lord. And now we ask, Lord, that uh, you would go before us as we uh, worship you in the reading and the study of your word. I pray for each one of us here, Lord, that we would get whatever it is you have to say to us tonight. Open our ears, open our minds so that we can receive. And Lord, I just want to uh, uh, say a little prayer for myself because my voice has been uh, not doing well all all day. So I just pray for a little special uh, uh, touch uh, on my voice tonight, Lord, that you'd get uh, get us through this. So Father, we praise you, we thank you, we honor you, we glorify you, we love you. And we give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would, go ahead and turn to the uh, book of Ruth. Ruth is located uh, between the book of Judges and uh, the book of 1 Samuel. So if you go to the book of uh, Judges, uh, then turn right. And if you go to 1 Samuel, turn left, and you'll get the Ruth. We'll do a little review of the first two chapters uh, and the book itself. Uh, the author of this book, uh, uh, the author as well as the time of the writing of this book of Ruth is unknown. Some people believe that Ruth herself may have been the author. Others believe that perhaps the author was Samuel because the book contains an appendage at the end uh, which gives the genealogy of King David. Oral tradition says that this book was written in the golden age of Israel, which would be in either David's reign or Solomon's reign. But who the author was or when it was written doesn't really matter. What does matter is that it is a part of Holy Scripture. And we're going to study that tonight. I'm sorry. How do we know that the book of Ruth isn't just fiction? Because Ruth was one of the four women named in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. The theme of the book of Ruth is really special. It's a beautiful story of love, loyalty, and redemption, while also being a book of prophecy in the form of what we call typology. A type being an Old Testament anticipatory analogy. That's a, that's a, that's a, $25 word there. Uh, Or in other words, it's a picture or an illustration or a hidden meaning that foreshadows something that will be revealed in the New Testament. Uh, A lot of times, a lot of of teachers will use uh, that phraseology, types and shadows. And they're talking about something in the Old Testament that foreshadows something in the New Testament. So that's really is, is what that means. 
The book of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges in Israel, a period that began in 1380 B.C. with the death of Joshua and ended in 1050 B.C. with the reign of Saul as the first king of Israel. It was a time of extreme spiritual and moral decay in Israel. The time of the judges was not a good period for Israel. The book of Ruth serves as a prophetic type or picture also of the Lord's relationship with his church. It is one of only two books of the Bible named for women, uh, the other one, of course, being the book of Esther. Before we begin chapter 3, let's do a quick review of chapters 1 and 2 and see how we got here. In chapter 1, we were introduced to a Jewish family headed up by a man named Elimelech. In order to escape a famine in Israel, he takes his wife, Naomi, along with his two sons and moves to the nation of Moab. Now, you might remember where Moab is. If, if, if this is Israel, Moab is right down here. It's in the southeastern corner of, uh, of Israel. After some time in Moab, Elimelech dies. His wife, Naomi, and his two sons remain in Moab after his death. His sons marry Moabite women, which, by the way, was uh, not, not supposed to happen according to the, the law of Moses, but they married them anyway. About ten years after, uh, after dwelling in Moab, both of Elimelech's sons die also. This leaves his wife, Naomi, and his two daughter-in-laws alone and without any means of support. At about the same time, the famine in Israel ends. Naomi decides to return to Israel. Knowing that her two daughter-in-laws would have a difficult time finding a husband in Israel because they were, Jews were forbidden from marrying Moabites, uh, Naomi entreats them to return to their own people. Her one daughter-in-law, Orpah, I always want to call her uh, Oprah, but I, I, I managed to not do it that time. Her one daughter-in-law, Orpah, does return to her own people. But the other one, Ruth, refuses to desert uh, Naomi and insists on returning to Israel with her. They return at the time of the barley harvest, and that got us to chapter 2. In chapter 2, we find that even though the famine in Israel has ended, Naomi and Ruth, without male support, still face hardship and possible starvation. The usual two options for a woman in that culture, in that position, was to either become a beggar or a prostitute. Ruth takes option one and asks permission to go to the fields that are being harvested to see if she might find favor from someone who would let her glean in their field. We looked at the law of gleaning in our study uh, of chapter two. What gleaning basically means is to go behind the harvesters and glean or to collect whatever grain uh, may have been dropped or missed or, or just uh, left by the harvesters on the vine. This was allowed in Israel uh, as gleaning was a part of the Mosaic law. This was kind of their social uh, safety net for uh, the poor. They, they didn't have a law program, not like we have. And that was one of the safety nets for the poor. It turns out that Ruth does find favor. The Hebrew word means grace, actually. 
uh, in the field of a man that turns out to be a near kinsman of Naomi's husband. We don't find out how near, it doesn't matter. He was a near kinsman. That point will be very important in our study tonight. The man's name is Boaz. Boaz not only allows Ruth to glean in his fields, but he tells his harvesters to purposely drop grain for her to glean, as well as telling them to let her gather grain from the part of the field that has not even been harvested yet. So uh, Ruth found a lot of favor in, in Boaz's eyes. Boaz also instructs his young men not to touch or molest Ruth in any way. They, also told, uh, they were also told to provide protection for her from any others in the area who might try to molest Ruth. A woman by herself of that culture was always in danger. In the end, Ruth brings home an abundance of grain for her and Naomi. When Naomi discovers that the man Boaz who owns the field is a near kinsman to them, Naomi recognizes that something special has happened here and God and gives God the glory for it. That's uh, if, if you remember back in chapter 2 when she came back to Israel, she was pretty down in the dumps and wasn't ready to give God glory for much of anything. She said, I went out full and came back empty. But here she sees that God is doing something special and she gives him glory for it. Naomi instructs Ruth to glean in no other field than in Boaz's field. And that brings us to chapter 3. Before we begin chapter 3, and as this is a prophetic, uh, this book is prophetic in nature, foreshadowing events that will take place in the New Testament, I think we need to first identify who all these characters we've come across so far uh, in the book of Ruth represent because they are uh, representative of certain people. Naomi is a type or a representation of the nation of Israel. Ruth is a type or representation of Christ's church, of us. The unnamed servant of chapter 2, he's the guy that pointed uh, Ruth out to Boaz. Uh, He is typical of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is always unnamed. In scripture. Uh, and Boaz is, of course, typical of the Lord himself. These are the major types found in this book so far. There are many other types found in the book also. Moab, the country of Moab itself, is a type or a picture of the world. Ruth finding favor of Boaz is a picture of our finding uh, the grace of God in Christ. Boaz offering Ruth bread and wine vinegar, uh, which we saw in chapter 2, is a type or foreshadow of communion. I would encourage you to go through the book yourself on your own time and just see how many other types you might find in there. It's just chucked full of really, really good stuff. Later in the study, we will find one more type, a major type in the book of Ruth. We will look at the one called the closer relative in verse 12. We won't get there tonight, but the Lord, if the Lord tarries, maybe someday we will. Uh, but anyway, the closer relative in verse 12 of chapter 3 and identify who or what he might represent when we get there. So with all that being said, let's begin by reading all of Ruth chapter 3. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, 
My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. And you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and covered his feet and she laid down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and he turned himself. And there a woman was laying at his feet and he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you, O the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a closer relative than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also he said, Bring the shaw that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, she measured, he measured six ephods, or six measurements of barley, and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me. For he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So, a lot of stuff in there, and uh, we're not going to get to all of it tonight. Again, our study tonight will be centered on verses 1 through 5. So let's read those one more time. I want those to be firmly in your mind. Verse 1, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. 
Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in and cover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. In verse 1, we see Naomi's concern for Ruth. Here, without knowing it, Naomi is applying the principle given us in 1 Timothy 5.8. That's where Paul told us this. He said, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worth worse than an unbeliever. There was no man to provide for Ruth. So Naomi decided that she would attempt to remedy that herself. This is what Naomi was attempting to provide for her daughter-in-laws in chapter 1 when she pleaded with them to return to her own people. Ruth chapter, uh, chapter 1 verse 9, Naomi said this, She said, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Here in verse 1, Naomi is determined to still seek this for Ruth here in Israel. Verses uh, 2 through 5 will now introduce us to a part of the Mosaic Law known as a Leverite marriage. But more than that, it will also introduce us to the broader concept of the goel, or the kinsman redeemer. And it's a really important subject, so I'm going to take uh, a little detour from Ruth here and explore these, uh, these subjects. First, let's look at the Leverite marriage. Let's see what that was all about. What is a Leverite marriage? Well, first off, be aware that it has nothing to do with Levi or the Levitical priesthood. It has to do with inheritance and the redemption of an inheritance through keeping a family name alive in Israel. The term itself is a derivative of the Latin word lever, meaning husband, brother. So that's how we get leverite. Among the Hebrews, uh, marriage with a a brother's widow was forbidden as a general rule but was regarded as obligatory when there was no male heir resulting from the marriage. God sought to preserve families. If a man married a wife and died before they had any children, then it was his brother's obligation to take that woman as wife so that the first son that was born would be named after the dead brother in order that the family's name would continue in Israel. And that was important for the, for the inheritances. And while it is not exclusive to the Mosaic law, because I believe it is also found uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the, the law of Hammurabi, uh, it is found uh, in, the Deut- in, the, in the book of Deuteronomy, though, chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. And we'll look at those right now. If you want to turn there, you can. And this is discussing the Leverite marriage. Deuteronomy 25.5. It says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her, take her as his wife, 
and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. The sons he had after that with her would be his sons. Only the firstborn son was named after his brother. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to rise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Verse 8 says, Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Now, why they had that specific procedure, I have no idea. But evidently, it wasn't something you wanted to have done to you. In the strictest sense of the law, it only applied when the two brothers had been dwelling together on the same family estate. But it was expanded further in the law. We know what the Jews did to the Mosaic law. They just kept adding to it and adding to it. It was expanded further in the law to mean that any nearest relative of a childless Hebrew man could be called on to perform this function. The Hebrew word for brother used uh, here in Deuteronomy is uh, ach. I think I pronounced that right, ach which means a brother from the same parents or a half-brother with the same father. In the expanded meaning of the word, it can also mean a relative, kinsman, or someone from the same tribe, someone who could fulfill the role of the goel. So what is a goel? The goel, and it's sometimes translated kinsman-redeemer, had a specifically defined role in Israel's family life. The Goel, the kinsman redeemer, was responsible. This is important. These these next two points are important. The Goel, the kinsman redeemer, was responsible to buy a fellow Israelite out of slavery. He was responsible to buy back family land that had been forfeited. And also he was responsible to carry on the family name by marrying the childless widow. We'll get to why those points are important later. Overall, it was a responsibility of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, to safeguard the persons, the property, and the prosperity of the family. But the Goel had another responsibility also. He was also responsible to be the avenger of blood. Responsible to make sure that if a family member was murdered, that the murderer answered for the crime, paying life for life. The role of the Goel fell to the nearest family member available. Leviticus 25, 47 through 49, it says, Now if a sojourner or a stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor, and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you, 
or to be a member of the stranger's family. After he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him and his family may redeem him. What does all this have to do with us today? Well, quite a bit, actually. While we don't have time for a detailed study, let me just hit the highlights of why this is important to us today. The Goel is kinsman and redeemer. Who is our redeemer? Our redeemer is Jesus Christ. What is the requirement under the law? In order for one to redeem us, he must be a kinsman. In order for Christ to redeem us, he had to be our kinsman. He had to be human. And as we know, Jesus Christ is fully man as well as being fully God. He is, uh, he is of our human blood as required by the law. And as we also know, Jesus himself said in Matthew 5.17, he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. As, <clears throat> excuse me, as well as needing to be God, because only an eternal being could awful, offer eternal life, Jesus also had to be human in order to redeem us. He had to be of our blood. The Goel is the avenger of blood. This one gets really interesting. This idea of the avenger of blood leads us to the subject of the cities of refuge, another requirement of the Mosaic law. And that's found in the 35th chapter of the book of Numbers, verses 9 through 30. I'm not going to go all through that. You can read that on your own if you'd like. But I'll give you a condensed version of what all that's all about. The Israelites were told by God to set aside six cities of refuge, three on one side of the Jordan River, three on the other side of the Jordan River. The idea being that a city of refuge would be close at hand to anyone living in Israel. Just as a side note, that does prove one other thing. Israel does own the, left, the west bank of the Jordan River, they also own the east bank of the Jordan River, and they're going to have that one day. But that's a side, that's a side study. We're not going to go into it tonight. <clears throat> the purpose of the cities of refuge. If a person were to cause the accidental death of someone, what we refer to as manslaughter, they could escape retaliation from the avenger of blood by fleeing to one of these cities. As long as they could prove that the death was accidental, they were allowed refuge and the avenger of blood could not harm them there. And they were allowed to stay under the protection of the city of refuge for as long as the high priest lived. After the death of the high priest, the person could then return to their home and the avenger of blood could no longer seek vengeance against them. If, however, there were to leave the city of refuge before the high priest died, all bets were off and they were fair, fair game for the avenger of blood. Again, we ask, what does all this have to do with us? 
It brings us to one of the seven statements Jesus made from the cross. Remember when he was up there on the cross, he made seven statements. We're going to look at one tonight that I believe is very, very important. The one statement that is of particular importance to us and I believe could well be the most important statement in, ever made. We find it in Luke 23:34. says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why is that statement so important to us? Because Jesus was murdered by the Jews. And in actuality, he was murdered by all of mankind. And murder had only one remedy in the law. And that remedy was death. But with that statement, I believe that Jesus moved mankind's involvement in his death from the category of first-degree murder, premeditated murder, into the category of manslaughter thereby qualifying mankind to flee to the city of refuge for protection from the avenger of blood. Who is our city of refuge? Jesus. Scripture abounds with that idea. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Jeremiah 16.19 tells us, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, and my refuge in the day of affliction. How long can we take refuge there? We can take a refuge there until a high priest dies. Who is our high priest? Jesus. Hebrews 3.1 says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Is Jesus ever going to die again? No, he's not. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. It says, and then, and when I saw him, speaking of Christ, this is John speaking, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Jesus is our eternal high priest. We will be forever protected from the avenger of blood in our city of refuge, which is Christ himself. But also, who is the avenger of blood? Again, it's Jesus. When will Jesus perform his duties as the avenger of blood? I believe that one place that that's recorded will be in the Great Tribulation in his answer to the prayer for vengeance of the martyred tribulation saints, as recorded in uh, chapter 6 of Revelation. Revelation 6, 9, and 10, it says, And when he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. To the unrepentant, Jesus will be the avenger of blood, requiring blood for
for blood. But for the believer, he is our kinsman redeemer, redeeming us for and reconciling us to God the Father for all of eternity. Isn't the word of God amazing? Isn't it beautiful in its complexity? The, you see the intricacy woven, how it's woven together, the, symmet- the symmetry of it all. 66 books, 40-some authors, but only one narrative. It is all about Jesus. Jesus and his love and compassion for his creation. Jesus' love for us. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. That is why in the book of Hebrews, the author, in speaking of Christ, paraphrased the words of Psalm 40. He said, Then I meaning Christ, said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. The entire scriptures are all about Jesus Christ. Put Jesus Christ in the middle of everything. It's divine logic. Everything in, the, in, the, in scripture is divine logic. You know, there was kind of a, a thought out there that if you become a person of faith, you have to put logic to the side and just accept everything on faith. And nothing could be farther from the truth. What we accept on faith is Jesus' work on the cross, his death, his resurrection, and the fact that he paid for our sins and that we are forever cleansed of those sins. and And we trust that as our salvation. That is our faith. But when it comes to the word of God... We use faith, but we also use logic because God has a purpose for everything that's in that book. Now, some of it may be kind of obscure to us because it may not necessarily be for us. It may have been for the Old Testament saints. It may be for the tribulation saints. So we won't have a perfect understanding of the logic, but all of it is logical. God does not do anything that is illogical. Always remember that. Anyway, back to the book of Ruth. And you're probably wondering if we're ever going to get there. Well, we're all the way up to verse 2. It says, Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So the picture is this. The harvest is in, and Naomi tells Ruth that Boaz is near a relative of theirs, will be spending the night winnowing the barley at the threshing floor. And that's a somewhat windy place set apart for threshing grains. Basically, they did that with barley the same way as they did with wheat. They would thresh the crop by throwing it up in the air. The heavier grain would fall here. The lighter shaft would fall farther down. The grain, the good stuff, and, and, the, and, and the, uh, the chaff, the unprofitable stuff, were separated at the end of the harvest. And for us, sometimes, I think sometimes our, our lives can seem like we're in the threshing floor sometimes, doesn't it? That maybe God is separating the good stuff from the bad stuff in our lives. <clears throat> Scripture confirms to us that Jesus uses this technique with his church, corporately and with his people individually. 
In Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, John the Baptist, speaking concerning Jesus, said this. He said, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean up his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Let's pray we're all wheat here tonight. Verse 3, it says, Therefore wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. In other words, after he's finished celebrating a successful harvest. Verse uh, Ruth 3.3 3 is, I think, one of my favorite. As, uh, as Zeke would say, it's my favorite verse. Here in verse 3, I believe we find another of those many types. Similar to the type in chapter 2 where Boaz served uh, Ruth bread and wine vinegar, which I believe also was a foreshadow of the Lord serving his disciples' communion in the New Testament. Here in in verse 3 here, Naomi tells Ruth to wash yourself, anoint yourself, and put on your best garment. Again, I see, I see this as a type. I see it as a type or foreshadowing of the justification portion of salvation. Now, remember that salvation has three parts. Justification, which is our cleansing that's done at the cross, totally through the work of Jesus on the cross. Second part is sanctification. That's kind of dependent on both Jesus and us. We have a lot of input into sanctification. Sanctification is the setting apart of us, uh, of ourselves, to do God's work. And the third part, of course, is glorification. Justification, uh, sanctification, glorification. Glorification will come when we appear in glory with Jesus. Not our glorification, but we will be sharing his glorification. So that's the the three portions of it. So here Naomi tells Ruth, she says, wash yourself. And isn't that exactly what we do when we come to Christ? We wash ourselves in his blood. Actually, it would be uh, more accurate to say that it is Jesus who washes us in his blood. Sometimes the communion will sing that song, and part of it says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Christ can wash us from our sins. First John 1 John 1.7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Revelation 1.5 And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us, from our sins in his own blood. Psalm 51 has two verses that attest to this. Verses 2 and 7, it repeats it. It says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Isn't that beautiful? That's what God, that's what God does to us. So the first part is she tells her, wash yourself. Naomi then tells Ruth, anoint yourself. 
of course, in the justification process, we don't actually anoint ourselves, do we? 1 John 2.27 says, But the anointing of the Holy Spirit he's talking about, but the anointing which you have received from Christ abides or indwells you forever. So, wash, anoint. What's the third part? Naomi tells Ruth, put on your best garment. What is our best garment? The righteousness of Christ. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Romans 13.14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Even way back in the book of Job, the first, the oldest book of the Bible, Job said this, he said, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. Wow. The righteousness of Christ is not only our best garment, it is also our wedding garment. Because remember who we are. We are the bride of Christ. Isaiah 61.10 says this. says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Christ is our wedding garment. So here in a little obscure verse in the book of Ruth, I think, I believe, we see the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit. A simple little verse that we could read right over without giving it much thought. But I believe, anyway, I believe, it's a prophetic picture of our justification in Jesus Christ. You may not see that, but I see it. Verse 4. Naomi gives Ruth further instructions. It says, Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. In verse 4, Naomi tells Ruth to wait until after the harvest celebration, till Boaz is done celebrating, then to watch where he lies down to sleep. Once he's asleep, she's to go, and she's to uncover his feet, and she is to lie down herself and wait for Boaz to find her there. Naomi knew that once Boaz found Ruth laying at his feet, he would recognize what was taking place. He would recognize that Ruth is is asking him to perform um, the the husband's brother's role, to, to perform a Leverite marriage. He would know that. And he would then give Ruth further instructions. This verse, too, has a somewhat prophetic bent to it. Ruth symbolizes the church, and Boaz symbolizes the Lord. Ruth is instructed to wait at the feet of Boaz for instructions. As the church, where's the best place for us to be? Getting instruction at the feet of Jesus. This is somewhat reminiscent of the story of Martha and Mary in Luke chapter 10. If we remember the story, Jesus comes to their house to teach Martha is busy going about preparing food and serving the guests and doing all the busy work. 
Mary, on the other hand, is just sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. Martha complains to Jesus about Mary, and Jesus answers her complaint by telling Martha this. Luke 10, 41 and 42. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. Does that sound like you? Are you ever that way? That sounds like me. I'm always worried and troubled about something. He continues, he says, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. The point being that while it is good and necessary to serve, to sit and listen and get instruction at the feet of the master is a better choice. And that's something we need to do before we serve, because we need to know how to serve. But being at the feet of the master is a very, very good place to be. One further note here in verse 4. There will be nothing taking place in the encounter between Ruth and Boaz that will be of a sexual nature. Some people do try to make that appear that way. No, nothing sexual, but something very different than that will be taking place. And we'll get into those details when we... uh, Next time we meet. Verse 5 tells us that Ruth was obedient. It says, And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. How important is obedience to the Lord? 1 Samuel 15.22 tells us this. It says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Jesus himself put it quite simply in John 14, 15. He just simply said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Be obedient. So Naomi sends Ruth on a mission Naomi's, uh, Ruth's assignment is to approach Boaz regarding a Leverite marriage. In verse 6, Ruth begins the mission in earnest. And we will explore that in detail the next time we meet. The book of Ruth is a small book, but it's rich and full of types and foreshadowings of New Testament themes. My, exhort, my exhortation for you tonight is this. Don't just read the word of God. Study it. Dig into it. Get into it. It's full of hidden treasures that God placed within it just for you to discover. And in your study of the word of God, fall in love with the word of God. And if you do that, if you fall in love with the word of God, you will find that unlike any human love, it will be a love that will never disappoint you. Will you stand with me as we pray? There's coming a time that will be the end of all things. When that time arrives, every human being will stand before Christ and Christ will be one of two things to each person. 
He will either be the kinsman redeemer or he will be the avenger of blood. Every person will fall on one side of that dividing line or the other. It's crucial for each of one of us here tonight to make sure we fall on the right side of that line, that Christ is our kinsman redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for tonight, for the treasure that is your holy word. Help each of us to read and understand and then to apply to our lives the wonderful things and truths contained within it. And thank you, Lord, for being our Goel, our kinsman redeemer, for loving us so much that you were willing to come and die so that we can live. We thank you for your grace and mercy upon our lives. We love you, we praise you, and to you be all glory and power and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got prayer teams.